Back in the 1960s, there was a movie released called It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And it was a slapstick comedy. It had a star-studded cast in it. And uh, it was about a race to find $350,000 in stolen money that had been hidden in the fictitious town of Santa Rosita, California. And I think of that movie quite often, and not because of the plot, but really because of the title. It's a mad, 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 mad world. And when I see what we have going on around us, be it in news media, in social media, in uh, movies and television, in academia, in politics, uh, truly we are living in a mad, 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 mad world, isn't it? Uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. We consider the, the craziness that ensues as we, we see people casting aside truth and redefining things, and uh, up is down and down is up, and, and it's leading to all sorts of confusion. Uh, we redefine things like marriage and family and gender and, and justice and what's right and what's wrong, and, and, and that confusion is, has really led to great craziness. It's a mad, 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 mad world. It's also a, a mad, 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 mad world when we consider the anger and the rage that's on display uh, around us. Uh, we see that anger among nations. We see it among individuals. We see it in communities and in cities and families in churches. And, and I'll be honest with you, I never imagined you'd see some of the things that we see happening in our, in our society today. Uh, and it can be very easy in the midst of all that to think that things couldn't get much worse <laughs> or that they've never been worse. But whenever I think about that, I am reminded that, uh, as Ecclesiastes 1 and 9 says, there's nothing new under the sun, right? It's really always been a mad, 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 mad world in, to some, some extent. And in Psalm chapter 2, a psalm that was written about 3,000 years ago, we find that then, too, it was a mad, 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 mad world. Uh, nations were enraged against God. But this psalm comes along to remind us that no matter how mad, no how bad, no matter how crazy things may seem to be in our world today, God is still in control. We know that God has appointed his anointed. And we can take refuge in him amidst the rage. And we can kind of find cause for rejoicing. So perhaps like me, you find yourself uh, shaking your head today at this crazy world that we live in. Uh, perhaps you've been personally affected by this madness and maybe feel on the verge of going mad yourself. <laughs> um, but as we study Psalm 2 this morning, I, I trust that this message will, will allow us to see God as that source of refuge, as that source of ultimately joy and rejoicing in the midst of all this. And I pray that it'll be a, a real great motivation for us to, to get out there and bring some semblance of, of, of truth and some semblance of, 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 of rationality, some semblance of, of righteousness to this world around us. So um, now for the month of August, we just recently finished up our series in, in the book of Titus, another book we've uh, worked our way through as a church. And uh, for the, the month of August, for the rest of the summer, we're going to be spending some time in the, the Psalms. And I don't know if you saw the, the, the pre-service in, information from, uh, from Pastor Mark, talked about how, you know, two years ago we spent the summer looking at some selected Psalms, and last year spent time in Proverbs. This time we're back in, uh, in Psalms for the, 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 this month that lies ahead. And, um, and it's great because it gives us an opportunity to, uh, to focus in on some of these, uh, uh, this great hymn book of the Bible. 
uh, this great uh, poetic book of the Bible. And, and as we study the Psalms, we need to be mindful of the fact that it is, uh, it is Hebrew poetry. It's a special kind of literature that we can enjoy. It, uh, it has a lot of parallelism, has a lot of uh, similes and metaphors and hyperbole and all kinds of great things in there. But also what's important is that those Psalms are, can be classified some different ways. And, and we look at Psalm 2, we find this to be a, a royal psalm or a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that celebrates the, uh, the, the God's king being appointed. And it was probably a psalm that was, uh, was sung at any time that a new king was uh, appointed over, over Judah especially, uh, and maybe on an annual basis that they celebrated and commemorated that. So it has a, it's a royal psalm from that focus, so you'll see that as we read it through today. Uh, but it's also classified as a messianic psalm. And that's a, a big word for a psalm that talks about, uh, prophetically about the coming Messiah, the coming chosen one, anointed one of God, who is going to come one day and rule and reign. And we'll see how that unfolds for us as well. So uh, Psalm 2 is, uh, is just uh, 12 verses, but it, it, uh, it outlines for us in this way. We're going to look, first of all, at the, the rebellion of the nations that are on display. We're going to see, second, how God reacts to that rebellion uh, we'll look third at the reign of God. And then finally, there's a call to repentance for the nations to come back and find hope in him. So as we begin, let's first of all take a look at, uh, at, at Psalm 12. Let me read through the whole thing first of all, then we'll go back and look at piece by piece as it unfolds for us. I'm reading from the uh, Christian Standard Bible. Uh, and it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with a reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite for any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. May God add his blessing to the reading and the teaching of his word to our hearts today. We begin in verses 1 through 3 by, by focusing on the rebellion of the nations, the rebellion of the nations. It begins with rhetorical questions about why do the nations rage uh, why, and, and the people's plot a vain thing? Why are they going so, so crazy out there? And as it's directed toward the nations, we need to understand in that time, we're, we're dealing with the nations, the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations are the, the focal point at this moment here. And, but we're also reminded that, uh, that the nations, human government, was established by God, one of three institutions established by God for the, the welfare of, of mankind. Uh, the first institution is that of, of the family, okay? Uh, that of the family in, in marriage. And, and we find that established very beginning in, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we find that as Jesus speaks about it in Matthew chapter 19, he says that, that uh, have you not read from the beginning that God created them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they two shall become one flesh. 
What man is joined together, let not man separate. And we find the, the Scriptures giving us clear teaching about the, the husband and wife relationship and the family and how that's all to be structured. We saw some of that in Titus, certainly, uh, for, for within the church. And, and we find that that has been established as one means of uh, one institution for us. A third institution uh, is, the, is the, the church, or we could say the congregation. Under the Old Covenant, you had Israel, the nation of Israel, uh, led by its uh, prophets and priests uh, to be God's presence and representation and, and make a difference in the world around us. Today, in the, under the New Covenant, we are the, have the church led by its elders and deacons and, and, and serve a purpose of being uh, light to the world, salt in the midst of the difficulties. And so we have that calling of the, the church as well. Um, the other institution is that of the nations. It's human government. And uh, human government was established for us back in, in Genesis chapter 9. After the, 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 the world had gone into such rebellion against God that God wiped it out with a flood, uh, he saved Noah and, and uh, his wife and children and, and started things over again. And coming out of the flood in Genesis chapter 9, he establishes this human government when he says, um, you know, things got so bad before, now I'm going to have man govern man to the extent that Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And he establishes that as saying that man has a responsibility to, to kind of conduct that over one another. And then later on in Genesis chapter 11, after the nations had, had continued to, to kind of be together and rebel, Genesis 11 tells us a story about God dividing the, the world into the nations at the Tower of Babel, how he scattered them. And that's where the different languages come, what we consider different races come from, and, and established these nations. And that was God's intent. And there was a purpose in all that. And in Acts chapter 17, uh, uh, verse 26, God explains his purpose to us. And, and listen, as, as, uh, as Paul is preaching, he says this, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. God established these nations. He took out of one man, established these nations, established this world that's out there, and established this. He drew their boundaries. He set them apart where they are. And he did this so that they might seek God. Right? Ultimately, he wanted the nations to seek God. And that perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So all this is to show that the, the nations that have been established have been established as, a, as, as God has, a, has designed. There's human government. And there's a responsibility. And Romans chapter 13, he says that, that, they, uh, the, that human government was established there uh, as God's kind of vice regents in a sense in order to uh, reward those who did good and punish those who do evil. And so we are called to submit to those earthly authorities. So, so we see human government as something that was designed by God for a purpose, and it should live underneath of that guise of what God has established. However, what do we see? We see nations in rebellion against God. Instead of promoting the things that God would have them to promote, and instead of rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil, just the opposite begins to unfold for us. And so when it comes along here in, in, in Psalm chapter 2, it says that these nations, instead of following that, they are raging and they are plotting in vain against God. And it talks about the kings and the rulers there who have conspired together against the Lord. Uh, they are, are going against him in all fashions there. It's interesting that the word for plot in chapter 2 and verse 1 is the same as the word for meditate in chapter 1 and verse 2, Proverbs, Psalm 1, 2, meditating, thinking about it. The idea behind plotting in vain, raging plotting, and conspiring together is a reminder to us that there's intentionality behind these actions. 
Um, these actions are not taken in ignorance. You know, sometimes we have people, they, they, they do the wrong thing, but sometimes they just don't know any better. We think about that with our kids when we're raising them. Sometimes they do something that's wrong, and we realize, well, they probably didn't know it was wrong until we've been able to correct them and show them uh, the right way to go. And a lot of times people just haven't been taught some things that they, they should be taught. I uh, came to recognize uh, not long ago, well, a little while ago, uh, that common sense isn't so common anymore, right? Uh, I was part of a, uh, of a, of a team that developed um, a soft skills training curriculum for a workforce development board that's used all throughout the state of North Carolina now. So when people are trying to get jobs and, and learning how to go about being a good employee, uh, there's a course that they go through that the state offers and it's taught in community colleges and other places as well uh, to help people just to know things like, you know what, if you're going to be out sick, you need to call in and let your boss know. Because you'd be surprised how many people don't know they're supposed to do that, Right? Again, common sense isn't so common anymore. So all kinds of things like that, we, we realized we had to train a lot of people in because if they weren't taught that, they didn't know any better. So it wasn't that they were just trying to be rebellious or trying to cause problems. They just didn't know. And I think we see that a lot of times with, with Christians, with professing believers, and we take a look at their lifestyle and we say, boy, that does not seem to be a lifestyle of a Christian. And we have to pause and say, are they doing that because they're in rebellion, because they don't really know the Lord, or have they just never been taught the right way? Have they not been shown the right way? So I think we need to kind of, uh, kind of, kind of realize that responsibility we have to show people what's right, show people the right way to go. But as the psalmist addresses the nations here, it's not as if they don't know any better. These are nations that have determined and are intentional in their actions, in their rebellion against God. And they're conspiring against it. They're thinking about ways that they can rebel against it. And they are in rebellion, in verse 2, against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, the word anointed one here is the same as the word, it's the word Messiah uh, or the word Christ in the New Testament. And uh, contrary to what I believe when I was a kid, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? It's not Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and when it said Christ Jesus, I thought, oh, that's last name first, right? That's Christ, you know? <laughs> uh, but no, Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Uh, Jesus is his human name that he was given, which is Yahshua, which means God saves. Christ is the word for, for Messiah or anointed one. It all means the same thing. And it's really that chosen one of God in that sense. Now, when we think about anointed ones, we know that there were different anointed ones throughout the Bible, and any king was anointed in a sense as an anointed one. Um, and, uh, and so that had immediate application that when a king was now being appointed and they would sing this song about that king's appointment, the anointed one was indeed whatever that king, whoever that king was. However, um, we also know that there's an anointed one with a capital A, capital O. And a lot of our translations have that in there like that. Because it's not just talking about the anointed earthly king uh, or the anointed earthly prophet or the anointed earthly priest. It's talking about the anointed one of God, the Messiah. And he's pointing to that. And what do they say that says that the rebels, what are they saying? Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. And uh, the, the, the chain and the, the ropes that are used here, these were our terms used of how a, how a yoke uh, was tied to oxen or cattle, how it was attached to them. And it says we feel this burden from, from the Lord and his anointed one that's over us, and we want to cast that aside. We want to throw it away. The New Living Translation uh, phrases it this way. It says, um, let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. A lot of times people look at what God has expected and what God requires and what God desires and see it as 
enslavement and see it as a burden and see it as a very heavy yoke that's kind of trying to keep them from doing what they need to do and not realizing that everything that God has given to us when it comes to those, those expectations, those desires, is, is coming from, from a good God who wants the best out of his people, the best for people. And so we realize it's not that he's a cosmic killjoy, as he's been referred to at times, trying to ruin everybody's fun. Uh, the fact is God is trying to, to, to bring us in the right path and go the right way. But instead, in rebellion, we want to throw that off. We don't want to do it that way. And it is a mad, 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 mad world that thinks it can successfully rebel against God and get away with it. And so why do the nations rage? It seems kind of crazy in verses 1 through 3. But next in verses 4 through 6, we see how does God respond to that. And it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Notice the scene now shifts from focusing on the nations at this level and focuses on heaven and how heaven is responding in the midst of that. In the midst of this mad, 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 mad world, we need to step back and take a broader view, a view of heavenly things that are out there. Um, and so uh, it was reminds me of, of Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. And, and it's a, a wonderful psalm because it talks about the prosperity of the wicked. And the psalmist there is saying, you know, I'm looking at people in this world who are in rebellion against God, who don't want anything to do with God, and they are successful, they're healthy, they're living long lives, they've got everything going for them. And I'm watching these people have such success despite their rejection of God. And, and, and I'm thinking, is it worth it for me to serve God and not have it as good as they have it? And he says, as for me, I almost stumbled. I almost fell. I almost decided I wasn't worth serving God. But then I saw the end intended by the Lord. Then I stepped back. And I got beyond looking at just what things looked like on the surface and the apparent success and the apparent prosperity and realized that in the end, they're going to face destruction. In the end, unless they turn and repent and come to Christ and come to God, they're going to fall apart. And so it's important for us sometimes to step back in the midst of all that and have a, a heavenly view of things. And so when we, we step back into heaven, how does God respond? Well, you find him laughing at the nations. Now, this laughing is not a good laugh, though. All right, Laughter is usually a good thing, right? Uh, but this is really a laughter that's not a good thing. It's, kind of, it's a laughter that's in derision. God is not entertained. God is finding it ridiculous, just ridiculous, that these nations think that they could turn against me. These nations think that they could overthrow me and overthrow my anointed one. And so it says that he, he, he laughs, the Lord ridicules them, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. The shift to anger and wrath something that we really don't like to think about when it comes to God, right? We like to focus on God as love and God is merciful and God is gracious and God is good. But God is a God of wrath and of anger. We often sing the hymn, uh, In Christ Alone, uh, kind of a contemporary hymn. And it contains the line in there that says, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, several years ago, they attempted to print some hymnals, some books, uh, song books that changed that line. And eventually, the authors had to come back and say, no, you can't change that line. We don't give you permission. The line was changed to say that instead of saying, on the cross, Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, they changed it to um, uh, that on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Okay. Now, is that true? Yeah, that's true. 
But what's the intention was to downplay the wrath of God because we don't like to talk about wrath. We don't want to think of God that way. But the fact is, if we don't see God as a wrathful God, we don't see God for who he really is. I was a book on anger management one time, and it talks about how God is at the same time the most loving and angry person in the Bible. God is at the same time the most loving and angry person in the Bible because wrath is a part of things. And we might sit there and say, oh, wrath is so Old Testament, you know, that's, you know, that's all Old Testament stuff. Let, give me the New Testament where God isn't like that. Well, you haven't read your New Testament very well then because we do know that, that the wrath of God is mentioned 28 times in the New Testament, uh, oftentimes talking about how we can escape the wrath that is to come. So it's not as if there is no wrath being identified. And one of my, my uh, favorite amazing passages is in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, uh, where it says... Um, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So Revelation's pointing at a time of, of the wrath of God being poured out. But the amazing thing I find in that, that statement is the wrath of the Lamb. That seems like an oxymoron to me, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, you've all been to petting zoos, right? You've been around lambs, right? You know, uh, that, the reason they're in petting zoos is because you can just kind of go up to them and grab them and do all kinds of fun stuff with them, you know? But what does it say? There's the wrath of the lamb is coming. Who's the lamb? The lamb is Jesus, right? Jesus is the lamb of God. And Jesus does have wrath that's being stored up until that final day of judgment to come. And so wrath is not an Old Testament thing. It's, it's important that we understand that the wrath of God is there. Uh, Joseph Schumann, in, uh, uh, on a blog post of Desiring God, mentions some important truths about the wrath of God. He mentions, first of all, that God's wrath is just. God's anger is not just something that he kind of spouts off on and goes down an odd path with. It is just. It's done in righteousness. It's done in, in purity. Secondly, we see that uh, God's wrath is to be feared. Third, it's God's con- wrath is consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is consistency throughout all that. Finally, God, and, and also God's wrath is his love in action against sin. That seems like a strange thing, but the fact that God, uh, God loves the world and loves us means he has to deal with sin and he has to judge it. And so wrath against sin is there. And finally, God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus Christ. And now this section closes uh, in verses 6 with an emphatic statement that I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Zion, another name for Jerusalem, uh, for the holy mountain of God. And it's emphasizing here that God has established his king. And so God looks upon this mad, 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 mad world and declares that he's going to do something about it. He's going to do something about it. He has done something about it in establishing his king. Which leads us next to the, the, the reign of the sun identified in verses 7 through 9. It says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with an iron scepter and will shatter them like pottery. Now, there's a sense in which any uh, king of of Israel, king of Judah, uh, descendant of David, might be considered a son of God. Um, but, But here we have an emphasis upon a son that, that takes on new meaning in the New Testament. Uh, it's quoted in Acts 13, it's quoted in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, all speaking about, about the person of Jesus Christ. And we know that the, our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, uh, that, that for all of eternity, God existed as one God in three persons. Yet God, the Word, the Spirit, 
someone that we refer to as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And um, um, so they've existed in all of eternity. And with the incarnation, when the, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, he took on that title of a son of God. And we find over and over again God emphasizing that this is his son. At his baptism, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus went up on the mountain and took Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, with him, and there Moses and Elijah appeared to him, representatives of the law and of the prophets, and they appeared and they had a conversation that Peter, James, and John observed that was going on. And eventually they, 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 the, the two were taken away and Jesus was left alone with them. And they heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son, who, this is the son whom I love. <laughs> Listen to him. Listen to him. And we find that in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says that Jesus was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. In Acts chapter 13, uh, after uh, uh, rehearsing the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, Paul, this is his first recorded sermon in Acts chapter 13, says, God has fulfilled for us, this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you're my son. Today I have become your father. So this, along with, uh, with, uh, with Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is highlighting the greatness of Christ. And, and when it talks about comparing Jesus to the angels, it says, to which of the angels has he said, you are my son, today I become your father. And Hebrews uh, 5, 5 says, as, as he's talking about the greatness of Christ compared to the priesthood, he said, uh, it says in the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest. But God who said to him, you are my son, Today I have become your father. And this, these quotes that we have in the New Testament help us to see this is a messianic psalm. It's not just talking about that immediate appointment of a king and celebration of that kingdom uh, on earth, but it's talking about the one who was to come, that Jesus was to come. And so it has much broader and, and a larger scope to all that. And it's all just to say that the one to be appointed as king over this mad, 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 mad world is not just another man, not just another person. Uh, with human frailties, but it is the God-man. And to his son, he's going to give all the nations as an inheritance. (laughs) Yes, God has set aside Israel as a nation in a a special way to have a relationship with him, but that was to be representative of how he could relate to a people. And uh, all along the way, God's intent was to to embrace the nations, (laughs) to go way beyond beyond Israel and, and bring in those who, uh, who would, uh, he would call to himself there. And so, so we find that um, um, all the nations would become his inheritance. And we see he will rule over them with an iron scepter. <laughs> with an iron scepter. Uh, uh, an iron means that he's going to have to execute judgment at times. Uh, he's going to have to execute judgment and be firm about it. Uh, and when it talks about him breaking this as pottery here, you will uh, break them with an iron scepter. You shall shatter them like pottery. It's reminiscent of a common practice of the day that when, a, a, when someone was victorious over another nation, they would often bring artifacts from that nation in and uh, bring pottery in there. And, and we know that the Egyptians' kings did this. They would bring some of that pottery and they would break it as a symbol of how we broke your nation, how we broke you out. And here God is saying that, that, that his son is going to take the throne and he's going to call them all to himself. And so, he says, listen, you're in rebellion against me. It's ridiculous that you're trying to do this. You can't overcome that. I have established my son, my king, who is going to reign and is going to rule over you. 
And so how should you react to that? There's a call to repentance for the nations. Now notice in verse 10 now, it turns its attention back again like it did at the very beginning, talked about the kings and the rulers. Now it's talking about the kings and the judges and says, so now kings, be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the son or he will be angry and he will perish in your rebellion. Instead of plotting and conspiring against the Lord, they're to reverse that course of action. And instead, they're to be wise. They're to step back and receive the instructions that come from God. And instead of trying to throw off the Lord, they're to replace that rebellion with reverence. Uh, and it says, pay homage to the son. Literally, it says, kiss the son. Um, but the idea of kissing the son was to submit, pay homage, give glory uh, to him. And so they are to kiss the son, lest he be angry. Because, again, the fact is, if they do not respond, justice would then be served. A lot of talk about justice in our world today. A lot of talk about social justice, other sorts of justice. The only justice that really matters, though, is divine justice. Because we do have a king, we have a God, who will bring about justice. And the warning is here that if we don't pay homage to the Son, if we don't submit to him, we will perish in our rebellion because that anger may ignite at any moment. Right? This is a call not only to the nations, but I think also to, to individuals. You know, there's a time that's going to come when Christ will establish his kingdom. He will establish justice, and he will rule with the rod of iron. And though there's all different ways that people might approach how that's going to unfold ultimately, we know it's going to come to pass uh, one way or another. Uh, and while that will come eternally uh, in, in that sense, we also know that it could happen for an individual at any moment. Right? As the Bible says, it's a point that a man wants to die, then comes the judgment. And so we need to make sure that we are in a place where we are ready when we face that judgment to find the mercy and grace that we need. See, we're all born in this state of separation against, this state of rebellion against God that separates from Him, uh, separates us from Him. And there's nothing that we can do, no effort in all of our part uh, could ever satisfy the holy requirements of God. And you can't plead ignorance and say, God, I just didn't know any better, especially now because you've heard the, you hear the gospel, you hear the good news that, that Jesus Christ has, has come into the world first to be the Savior by going to the cross and dying to pay for the sins of the human race and to, to, so that you could have everlasting life. And so, so we find that, that emphasis, first of all, uh, that he's going to, he came in the first time to deal with sin, to be the Savior, paying the debt for us that we could never pay. And through repentance and faith, you can receive that everlasting life. Turn away from the rebelliousness and instead come to that place where you, with reverential awe, seek him, serve him, and find joy in him. And we notice at the end of verse 12, it says, all who take refuge in him are happy. We live in this mad, 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 mad world that's always trying to rob us of joy but Psalm 2 allows us to rise above it when we realize that, as I said, God has appointed his anointed, and we can take refuge in him amidst all the rage that's out there. And we can find comfort and strength in that. In Acts chapter 4, we find another place, one of many places in the New Testament where this psalm is quoted. 
In Acts chapter 4, we read the story of how um, after um, Christ is resurrected, he's ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has come in chapter 2, the church gets established, and now we're told in chapter 3 how Peter and John are going to the temple at a time of prayer, and they see a a man who was lame from birth, and and, uh, they they say, silver and gold have we none, but what we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he rises up and he walks, and and they begin preaching at that point in time to talk about how this, this, this man's healing came in the name of Jesus and who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And in Acts chapter 4, we find that Peter and John are arrested by the religious leaders, the priests, the captain of the temple, police, the Sadducees. They all confront him, and they, they bring uh, uh, them before the Jewish leadership and, and say, you know, what's going on here? And they have an opportunity there to, to talk about Jesus and what he's done, and they end up saying to him, listen, um, you know, uh, all right, we're not going to do anything to you. People like what you're doing, uh, but just don't talk about this Jesus anymore. And they said, uh, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to do what we got to do. We're going to do what God called us to do. Now, down in verse 23 is what I want to get to. It says, after they were released, after they were released from, from this arrest time period, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Notice their prayer begins by focusing on God as the creator who's over everything, the all-powerful one, the all-wise one. And he says, you said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one. And so in this midst of this persecution that's unfolding, what do they do? They turn to Psalm 2. And they find that Psalm 2 is their source of, of, of strength, their source of saying, hey, we're not surprised by this. <laughs> uh, this has been going on for, for years that people have been rebelling against God. And now that we see what Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Israelites, the Jews, have all done in verse 27, uh, we recognize here that this is that fulfillment of what you said was going to happen in, 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 Act, in Psalm chapter 2. And so as a result, what happens? Uh, Verse 29 says, And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. We live in this mad, 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 mad world that's trying to certainly drive us crazy, certainly trying to silence the voice of Christianity, the voice of God's word, the voice of God's truth. But in the midst of all this, instead of being shaken, we should be stirred up. (coughs) We can be stirred up to speak the word of God in boldness. We can be stirred up to speak the word of God in confidence because of the fact that even though the nations are enraged against God, God has established his anointed one on the throne. And in that, we take comfort and courage today. So going back to the difficulty we face as we take a look at what's going on in our world today, we just kind of shake our head and we get scared, we get angry, we get nervous, we just don't know where things are going to go or how bad things are going to get. Realize, again, there's nothing new here. God's been through it before. 
And so when we see this mad, 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 mad world in which we live, we can take comfort, take courage, realize that God's not caught by surprise. He's going to bring the right things to pass. And we rejoice that we can understand God has appointed his anointed and we can take refuge in him amidst the rage and have cause for joy and rejoicing. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can take comfort from your word here, that in the midst of this uh, mad, 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 mad world that we live in, uh, as we see things going uh, um, really off the rails, and as Christians committed to your word and to your truth, we can find a lot of confusion, a lot of fear engulfing our lives. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that, that in the midst of all this, your Son is our Savior, your Son is King, Uh, Your son will reign and make all things right. And Lord, I do pray that if there's some that are listening today here in this auditorium, listening by uh, online, that that would look at their lives today and say they maybe identify more with the nations that are in rebellion than they do with the ones who are submitting in reverence to you. That you right now would convict them of that sin and of the fact that unless they... (laughs) kiss the son unless they come to him and, and pay homage to him and submit to him and, and come to that place of, of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, a Savior, that that anger of yours, that wrath may stir up at any moment. And once it comes, it's too late. So I pray, Lord, that there's any here that need to right now repent and say, yes, Lord, I want to surrender to that. May they do so. And I do pray for believers here who maybe are struggling uh, the way that, that, that I do with the, this, the frustration of this world in which we live and its rebellion, that we realize none of this catches you by surprise. <laughs> uh, things have been this way. They will be this way. But one day, you're going to come and make all things right and make all things new. In the midst of it all, may we not be silent, but help us, Lord, to speak up, to testify of your greatness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.